0: Our reading today comes from Revelation chapter 17. If you want to open your Bible to that passage, Revelation 17. We're beginning at verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of those whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet When I saw her, I marveled greatly, and the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction." And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come. And when he does come... He must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast, They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose for being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This concludes the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated.
1: Okay, you got all that? <laughs> got that all figured out? You can see the picture very clearly. You can figure out what, that, what these all heads and... <laughs> Amy just said to me, she looked at me and said, good luck with that. So... Yeah, okay, uh, let, let's try to simplify this here a little bit. Um, let, me, let me start with this. Uh, here's, here's the curious thing about the book of Revelation. By my count, there are three times where the writer, John... Uh, responds to what he is seeing with some sort of emotional reaction. Which in and of itself is, uh, okay, is an interesting thing, right? Because these visions in the book of Revelation, they are these massive and illustrative, right? Dynamic visions. Yet only three times through the whole book do we have John pausing and giving any kind of emotional reaction or sort of any emotional commentary on what he's seeing. Uh the first happens in chapter four. I don't know if you remember that scene. Well, hopefully you do. That's one of the central scenes in the book, where we're we're up in the heavenly throne room, and we see the one seated on the throne holding a book of scrolls, or right, with seven seals on it. And those seals, right, or the scroll is the unfolding of God's purpose for his creation and for his people. And we find that there's no one in heaven or on the earth, or under the earth, who is worthy to open the scrolls and to execute God's purposes for his creation. And John, he wept, right? Because there was nobody there to open the scrolls until the angel comes and says, hey, hey, weep no more, for look, here comes the Lion of Judah who has triumphed. Another time, it actually comes at the very end of the book, Uh, after he sees these glorious visions of the end and the heavenly city and the glorious new creation that God has planned for his people and his world, like John is overwhelmed with emotion, and it says he's actually tempted to bow down at the feet of the angel who's delivering this message and this vision, and he's tempted to worship him. And the angel says, hey, yo, yo, don't, don't do that. I'm just a messenger. Worship the creator God. The third one, this passage today. Did you pick it up? Real quick, when John sees this woman, this whore, riding on top of this beast, and as she is decked out in all her scarlet and purple linens and all of her gold and pearls and jewels, as he's taking it in, he says, and I marveled greatly. Actually, the the phrase there, it's a pretty profound phrase. It actually means he was awestruck with wonder. It's actually a phrase that is often used in the New Testament uh, to describe like the crowds when they would see Jesus perform a dynamic miracle. They would be overcome with awestruck wonder, right? It's a phrase that comes eerily close to worship, actually like you see something of the same it's part of that same phrase used a little bit later on down in the passage when it describes the people of the earth who are marveling over the beast because of all of his power and over he's he was and he is not and he's now again right so when you think about that like it's a it's actually a very striking thought in fact the angel said to john john what are you doing <laughs> Why do you marvel at this? Let me tell you the mystery about this prostitute that you see riding on top of this beast. Okay, and, and yeah, this passage gets really complex and it gets into a whole lot of things. This passage is actually a code breaker's dream. If you're uh, one of those that views the book of Revelation as a secret code for how these the end times are going to play out, uh, this is one of those passages that you're going to love and you're going to want to sit and dissect, right? Because there's all this clues in here, right, to break that code. Uh, for a variety of reasons, we're not going to dive too deep into that. Uh, mainly because I don't have time. <laughs> partly because it's really difficult, and also partly because there's a million and one different ways to interpret some of the clues that are given here about the beast and the different heads on the beast and all that. For me, I'm sticking with this thing that stands out most. Uh, I don't know. Most boldly to me is that. When John sees this woman on top of this beast, this John who otherwise throughout the book seems to be fairly stoic and fairly straight and narrow with his emotions, all of a sudden is tempted, sort of, to fall down in worship. He's overcome with struck wonder. And so the simple question for me this morning, without getting into everything else that's in this chapter, the simple question for me is, who is this woman, and does she have anything to do with us here this morning? Right? Is there any chance that we might be in a similar situation as John and be tempted to worship something that we shouldn't? All right, so that's the question. That's what we're going after. Um, yeah, and so as we do that, uh, let me just get us caught up in where we are. Remember, right, our... Regular uh, review session here in the beginning. First of all, if you're with us this morning and you're new, you're checking us out or whatever, again, great to have you here. Glad you're part of it. Uh, we're in this book of Revelation, which is one of my favorite books, but it's also one of the strangest books in the Bible, and it would certainly be one of the strangest books to modern ears because it's apocalyptic literature, which we're very unfamiliar with. Basically, hopefully everybody else can start to finish my sentences for us. It communicates truth, promise, Warning through these vivid symbolic images that we're meant to just sort of look at and get this general sense and impression of, right? Okay, and we're in the second half of the book where some shady characters have been introduced to us a hideous dragon, a beast with seven heads, body of a leopard, you know, the mouth of a lion, paws of a bear, a beast that is more cute, <laughs> and walks around on the land, and then now also this prostitute. And as we've been saying as we go along, but again, I'm going to keep repeating it, the aim of the book of Revelation is to pull back the curtain on life and to show us some of the deeper, at times darker, spiritual realities that are at play behind the scenes. Okay, It's like if you go to the doctor's office and he's been trying to get you for uh, you know, quite a little while to take your diet and your exercise a little bit more seriously. He's saying, hey, you're getting older now. Your metabolism isn't once what it used to be, and you got to be more. Not that he's ever said that to me, but maybe I have that tucked away, right? And you, let's say you were thinking, oh, no, I don't have to worry about that because, well, I don't know, this, that, or other. And then the doctor says, well, let's just do a couple tests just to make sure and find out. Uh, I don't know, an MRI or, what is it, the sonogram, the test where they show you how your blood's pumping through there, right? And you watch some of the video of that and you see, oh, that blood's not pumping as, as fast and clean and there seems to be gunk in those arteries or whatever. Oh, now all of a sudden I see what's hidden a little bit and I'm going to take a little bit more seriously maybe how many cheesesteaks I'm going to eat on any given week. Right? In a similar way, that's what Book of Revelation wants to do. It wants to pull back that curtain. So if you see some of these darker spiritual realities at play that vie for your life, maybe you'll take more seriously your life, your spiritual life, what it is you worship, what it is your life is aiming at. So we've been introduced to some of these shady characters, and we're moving towards the end of the book, where God, as he is coming to renew the face of his creation, as Christ is coming to consummate his kingdom, he is going as part of that to remove from his creation all that resists him, all that stands in the way of his good intentions for his creation. Or in other words, he's coming to judge. He's coming to judge the dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land. And he's coming as well to judge this prostitute lady. Uh, We met her very casually in some of the previous chapters Like last week, we saw her show up at the end of the seven bowls, the fullness of God's judgment, right? We got that reminder that God is going to execute his judgment on Babylon as well, too. And it's almost like what we have now in verse, in chapter 17 and 18 is the angel saying, Hey, come, let me, let me, let me zero in just a little bit more on this judgment on this prostitute lady. Let me show you who she is, what she's all about, and how this judgment on her is about to go down. Okay. So let's talk about her. Who is this prostitute woman? Well, we can say a couple things about her. First of all, uh, we we should say one thing that we haven't got to quite yet: that she is a direct contrast to the bride, who will show up in chapters and nine, nineteen. Uh, we find out in you know in chapter seventeen here that this whore, this prostitute, also happens to be a city. Called Babylon well in the same way in chapters 19 20 21 the bride is a city as well too she's the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down right and that bride is it's the church it's the people of God it's the company it's the culture it's the family of Christ who have pledged themselves in covenant loyalty to Christ who have given of themselves to faithful worship and witness those who are being sanctified and purified by the blood of Christ Okay, so on the big level, the the whore, the prostitute, is the counter to that, right? She represents the people, the cultures, the cities that have given themselves in relationship with God's enemies. And I think we could push that, that, that contrast down a little bit further to say, you know, that the culture there is... Well, there's a difference between, hopefully you can recognize this, there is a difference between prostitute worship and prostitute relationship and bridal relationship, right? Uh, I don't want to dive too deep into the, uh, the ins and outs, but the business of prostitution. But, right, at this base level, it's a contractual exchange of goods and services, right? An individual wants pleasure or satisfaction or maybe brief intimacy, and he has money to offer. And then you've got this lady who is very interested in the money of the guys around town and she has her body to offer. And so they come together in a mutual exchange of goods and services. And it's very dehumanizing in the sense that I don't need to know the other person's name. I don't ever have to get to know them again or ever have any kind of meaningful relationship with them. I just give what I have to offer. They give what they have to offer. I get what I want. Boom, we go our separate ways. Something entirely different. From bride relationship, covenantal relationship, wherein joy and satisfaction and intimacy are experienced not just in taking and using and consuming the other, but instead of giving, in giving of yourself and sacrificial love and self donation to the other. Right? any time a marriage or any time any kind of relationship devolves into just a mutual or a contractual exchange of goods and services, this thing is on a dangerous road or certainly is not healthy, right? We know that a healthy relationship, a true and a joy and a life-giving relationship is one where meaning and satisfaction and intimacy are found not in taking and using, but in freely giving and self-sacrificial, self-donating love. Okay, so there's a contrast. Here's the point. There's a contrast here between... The whore and the bride. And there's a contrast between the whole way of life of the whore and the whole way of life of the bride as well, too. You with me so far? All right, let's keep going. Um, Another thing we've talked about in multiple places as we work through the book of Revelation, sexual immorality is part of this symbolic image for idolatry. We've talked about that. We've seen that in multiple places along the way. Revelation here is borrowing imagery from especially like the prophets of the Old Testament who would equate Israel's idolatry essentially with covenant infidelity. That what is idolatry but it's cheating on the God that you were meant to live in relationship with. Right? For the prophets, for the biblical writers, all throughout the Bible. We were meant to live in covenantal relationship with our Creator, to find in Him our life, our security, our meaning, our satisfaction, our purpose, our mission, right? And we were meant to give of ourselves and who we are and who he has made us to be in covenant relationship with him. And what is idolatry? Well, it's basically turning from him. And going and running after some other God because we think that'll be a quicker or fast or more convenient road to happiness and satisfaction and meaning and purpose and all those things, right? Which is all to say that this prostitute, it's not just all about sexual immorality. This city is not just fully devolved into sexual morality. It's a city that's devolved in idolatry. Or this is a city. This is a pro, this is a prostitute who offers to her would-be lovers not just sexual immorality, but she offers to him them all sorts of counterfeit gods and counterfeit idols to tempt and seduce them. What does she offer? Well, what is it that captivates John, or that leaves him in awestruck wonder? Right? It's it's her beauty. It's her wealth and her glamour and her luxury that she has decked out in head to toe, right? She's got these scarlet and crimson robes, which in the ancient world, that was like the most expensive dye you could get, the only the truly wealthy had access to. All right, she's got gold and pearls and jewels all around her, right? So this is someone who is offering to would-be lovers wealth, luxury, glamour, limitless opportunity and pleasure. Oh, and power too, right? Because she's seated on, on what? On the beast. It's like she's got the reins of the beast and she's directing this beast wherever it goes. And what's the mark of... Uh, okay, I don't want to say mark of the beast. What is the character? The fundamental characteristic of the beast? It's his power, right? It's his... Strength, it's his might, his dominion, right? He's the one that as he's rising up out of the sea, everybody's coming and gawking around saying, Who is like the beast? Who could possibly stand against the beast? Who could make war with this beast because the beast is so mighty and so powerful? Right? So the harlot, she also has power to offer her would-be suitors, her would-be lovers. Uh, another thing about this beast or sorry, about this woman, uh, she's drunk. And she's drunk from this golden goblet that she has and this wine in it, which we're told is abominations and impurities. Right? And when you read that word "abominations, just, in, in broadest terms, think things that are blatantly contrary to God's good intentions for His creation and His people. Or you can maybe even think blatant injustice. Right? This is a woman who has grown wealthy off the back of injustice and abomination. Right? She oppresses and she subjects anybody who would dare, I don't know, stand opposed to her or dare not devote their full allegiance to her or dare not assimilate into her whole way of life. Right? We're actually told that she is drunk with the blood of the martyrs, the blood of the saints. Right? The early church knew what happened when you didn't assimilate or you didn't vote your full allegiance or your devotion to this woman. Uh, and I point that out because so all these kings of the earth that come and they commit idolatry and immorality with her, all those who align with her and buy from her, right? They're also becoming participant in this abominations and this is injustice and in these impurities. One more thing about this woman. And this is part of the, the confusing part here. I don't know if you picked it up, but it's a little hard to determine what exactly is she sitting on? Because there's like three different references here. At one point, she's sitting on the beast. Okay, but then actually we're told that... Well, no, then she's sitting on the seven heads of the beast, which actually really aren't heads. They're seven mountains. Oh, but then actually when we first introduced her, she's seated on many waters, and we're told that the waters later on in chapter 15... Are nations and tongues and peoples and tribes. And then we're told at the very end, so in all the end of the day, this is the great city that has dominions over the kings of the earth. Right? And the book of Revelation it often does that. In the middle of a chapter, when you're looking at one picture, all of a sudden the picture changes and your head is spinning, trying to figure okay, are these heads or are these mountains? Is she seated on waters? Is she seated on heads? What's the deal here? And again, uh, part of the reason that's so hard for us is because we're removed from the ancient context that this book was written in. And it seems weird and strange, and our head is spinning trying to figure it out. But on the simplest terms, if you had gone to anybody in the ancient world and you would have said, Who is this woman who's seated on seven mountains or seated on many waters, which are nations and tongues and peoples and tribes? the answer would have been a resounding one. 99.99% of the people would say, I know exactly who this is. This is, can you fill it in the blank yet? It, it, this is Rome, okay? Right, quite literally, because you could, anybody would say, hey, look, you can go read some of the great poets and the, some of the great writers uh, in the Roman Empire, and they will talk quite literally about the city of Rome as seated on seven mountains. Or you, all you have to do is look at Rome and see how Rome has dominion over pretty much the known world at that time. Has dominion over peoples and tribes and nations and tongues and the kings of the earth. In fact, uh, you could look elsewhere, even in the Bible. You could go to like First Peter. And you could go to the very end of 1 Peter chapter 5 where he's giving his concluding, you know, hellos and welcomes from Mark and and whoever else. And he's saying, and the elect in Rome sends you greetings. Except he doesn't say Rome. He says, the elect from Babylon sends you greetings. Right. It was common perception, especially in the church in the ancient world, that Rome had essentially become all that Babylon was. This mighty, powerful empire that resists God's purposes and also subjects his people. Right. And again, I think it's important for us to remember that and to see that, right? Because the tendency so much for us, right, when we're reading this apocalyptic literature and we don't know what to do with it, We tend to think, okay, that just all must be scary stuff that's going to come down the pike somewhere in the future. I don't know what that means, but we'll see someday what that all plays out. Right. But for the ancient world, like, remember the context. We we have to remember that this book of Revelation was written to a very specific context, to a very specific group of people, a very specific group of churches, to first generation Christians who had recently pledged their life to Christ. Right. And had become convinced on the heels of his resurrection now that he was the one to follow towards life to the full and resurrection life throughout eternity, right? And part of the implication of that was, hey, uh, we really can't go anymore to these pagan ceremonies and feasts and sacrifices. We can't go to these... Temples where they are making sacrifices and, and participate in these worship songs where they are exalting Caesar as a divine son of God, called to execute the God's purposes throughout his creation. Right? We can't say anymore in a public square that Caesar is our Lord, because Jesus is our Lord. We can't bow down to these images of gods or these images of Caesars and burn our incense and make our sacrifices, right? because we worship now this, this Christ alone. And... Here's the thing. They suffered as a result of that. Right? We've talked about this numerous times. They were labeled unpatriotic. They were labeled all sorts of terrible things. They were ostracized from the neighborhood and from their community. They maybe lost jobs. They maybe suffered physical harm, imprisonment, and death, Right. And so partly this book is meant to explain to them what's going on, right? Because that would be my question. Hey, I've devoted my life to Christ, who is supposedly seated on the throne. How is it that I'm suffering as a result of this? How is it that the Roman Empire seems to be having its way with me? And so part of what Revelation does is it pulls back the curtain. It says, yeah, let me show you what's going on. Okay, and let me just answer one more question to that. Maybe if you've been, you know, following, tracking with us over the past few weeks, right, you maybe are thinking, wait a second, I thought we said a couple weeks ago that the beast was Rome. Right? We remember looking at this beast and how the beast is a conglomeration of the beasts of Daniel 7, which we were told are kings and empires and emperors who are going to rage against God's people and God's church. So I thought we were saying that the beast was supposed to be the Roman Empire. Well, the simple answer to that is that sometimes these, these images, they bleed into one another, right? And so I think you could say, well, the beast was representative of the power and the might and the military strength and domination of the Roman Empire, right? And then we talked about the beast of the lamb, which was like the propaganda wing of the first beast and went around with smooth talking, almost lamb-like, Saying, trying to convince people that their life would go well if they just worshiped the first beast. He was like the religious wing, convincing people to worship that beast. Right? And so if we look at the prostitute or the woman, we could say, well, she is the wealth and the glamour and the opportunity. She's the culture of Rome, built on the back of this beast. Right? And again, why this is so important is because it tempts John to worship. And my guess is that same temptation would have been there for anybody in the ancient church, especially as they are suffering persecution, suffering alienation, suffering the loss of jobs, suffering the loss of certainty and control and power over their lives. Hey, if we just go and we burn a little incense to the image of Caesar, or if we just go and we, uh, you know, participate in the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the patron kings and, or patron goddesses of our trade union, or or whatever it is, if we could just go give some of our worship here, man, our life would be so much better. Right? There is that temptation to worship. And so book of Revelation is pulling back the curtain saying, yeah, well, look, okay, here's what's going on. These things that you're tempted to worship, they're prostitutes on the back of beasts. A beast who, by the way, did you catch it at the end, is ultimately going to turn on the woman and is going to turn on the city and he's going to collude with the kings of the earth, and they're going to burn that city and devour her. It's what we talked about last week, that sometimes the things that we devote our allegiance to and we look to for life, they'll eat us alive. Okay, so here's then the question, and as we move to bring this to a close, right? the question is, well, what, if anything, does this have to do with us? Right? How are we supposed to take and receive this and apply this Image of this woman on the back of a prostitute, or back of of a beast. And here's the thing, the the common answer typically has been uh, nothing, I guess. (laughs) Right? Largely because, well, the book of Revelation seems too weird and strange and hard to understand, so we'll just kind of keep that on the shelf. But if we go into the book of Revelation, we'll assume that this image is either something... I don't know, maybe in the past, in the first century alone, or maybe it's something that's going to come in the future. We don't see it right now, so I don't know what. I don't know what implication it has for us in the here and now. Okay, but if this beast is one who was, who is not for a time, will come back again for a season, or if... Maybe part of the reason that John doesn't actually just come out and call this woman Rome is partly because, well, anytime you have an empire that seduces the powerful and intoxicates the common person with luxury and glamorous blessings and promises and beckons or summons their worship, well, right there you have a manifestation in some way, shape, or form of this woman riding on top of the beast. Or maybe... If what I've been trying to lay out, as we've been working through the book, that the book is not something that's exclusively in the past or exclusively in the future, but meant to draw back the curtain on what a follower of Christ can expect and anticipate in all of life in between the first victory of Christ and his second final victory. Well, if that's the case, then I don't think we have the luxury of saying, well, I don't think this really applies too much to us. sorry. Uh, I'll go a little bit further here, and I'll say, I don't think we have the luxury of saying this doesn't apply to us when, you know, and this is going to sound weird or strange, but I don't think we have the luxury of saying this doesn't apply to us when today we live in the greatest congruence of wealth and power that the world has ever known, right? We live in a nation that has more wealth and luxury and privilege and opportunity than Any other any nation the world's ever known. We live in a nation that has more power than all the other nations kind of putting their power together, or has more power in such that would've made Rome's military look like a bunch of boys playing I don't know, having sword fights with sticks in their backyard. Right? And hear me out here. I'm not saying right here that the nation that we live in is the modern-day manifestation of the whore riding on the beast. That's a great conversation to have for you code breakers out there who like to dive into the deeper complexities of the book. Maybe that's a dark, brooding, fireside chat some evening, right? We'll sit out, and maybe I'll join you, and we'll have a nice conversation. All I'm saying right now is I don't think we have the luxury of saying, while we live in (laughs) the greatest congruence of wealth and power that the world has ever known, I don't think we have the luxury of saying, well, this couldn't possibly apply to us. There shouldn't be, there couldn't possibly be a warning in here for us. I don't think we have that luxury simply because the Bible is a a recording of the history of God's people who all throughout the story are always being tempted to go and align themselves in worship with the gods of the surrounding nations, thinking that there is where I'm going to find deeper I don't know, wealth or prosperity or meaning or satisfaction, right? Whether it's the gods of Egypt or whether it's the gods of the surrounding nation when Israel gets into the promised land or whether it's the gods of Babylon or whether it's the gods of Rome, it seems, right, one thing that should come out very clear from the scriptures is that God's people, all people, we have this defect where we tend to prefer whore relationship and whore life To bridal life, right? We have this propensity towards religion on demand, right, if you will, where I'll come and I'll just slap my whatever onto the table and I'll get back in return wealth uh, or power or control or pleasure or comfort, whatever it is, and I get it much simpler, much easier, and I can be on my way and live my life, which is so much easier than this whole covenantal relationship that God calls me into. Right? We don't have the luxury because it's the history of God's people that we're hardwired for that in some way as a result of the fall. Right? Which is all to say, right, that, uh, well, I, I, I may, let me say it this way. Or I'll say this the other thing. The other reason I don't think we have the luxury of doing that is because if we're honest, right, the lines between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of our broader culture, they oftentimes get blurred in our society. And look, if I'm being honest here, you know, part of what drew me into the book of Revelation was some of the broader things that were happening in our culture, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, where there was all this political talk and political strife that was going on, and there were these critical theories that were working its way into public discourse, right? And, and at that time, there were all these warnings coming from, you know, pastors And churches and spiritual writers saying, hey, and this stuff is causing strife and division within the churches. Churches are splitting. Notable established churches that you thought would never struggle are splitting along the lines of these political conversations or these conversations about critical theory, which might aim at, you know, poking holes in the sanctity of our nation's founding or whatever. And part of the thing was, you know, as I'm listening to these warnings, and as I'm listening to some of these broader conversations that are taking place, and especially the ways Christians were engaging in politics and engaging in these critical discussions, admittedly, it was a little bit hard for me to discern, you know, on the broader cultural level, where our ultimate allegiance lies it was a little difficult for me to determine what were we most concerned about or what were we most concerned to protect and to guard. Was it the kingdom of Christ or the American way of life? Which, by the way, are not the same thing. And if you think they're the same thing, the, Reve- the book of Revelation is wanting to pull that curtain back you know, much farther and say, no, there are hidden idolatries in there. And that's perhaps the most insidious part of this whole discussion, right? that these idols... It's, it's a hidden business, right? We can be tempted to worship. We can be tempted to fall down and worship without even realizing what we're doing because we've just assimilated into this broader way of life. Uh, one way I think about this, it's a little joke between Amy and I and our, and our families. You know, growing up, my family, when we went on vacation, man, we had the day planned from the moment the sun Crested the bay, you know, down, no, not a bay, no, it crested the ocean. You didn't tell I would never up that early, but it would come up over the ocean, right? And boom, we had to make the most of the day. You woke up, we had some Browns donuts were down at Ocean City, or you had some Mallon's uh, cinnamon buns, and then we would get on our bikes and we would, you know, do the boardwalk, and and then we, boom, we had to go down to the beach and get everything set up, and then we'd have dinner together, and we'd go back to the boardwalk, and by the end of the day, whew, what a great day. I went on vacation when Amy and I first started dating, and we I went on vacation with her family, and... You just go sit on the beach and, and 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 sit and and just look out at the beach. <laughs> I didn't even really go into the water because they weren't big fans of the ocean. Whatever, you just sat there. I'm like, what in the world are I'm going nuts here because there's like nothing to this. Right? But then after a little while uh, or a couple years of doing this, I'm thinking, oh, this is actually relaxing. <laughs> and as life got older and a lot of maybe a little bit more stressful, I started to find myself longing for the more schlonecker style of vacations where it was just chill and relax. Uh, which is all to say, but I never even knew that that was a possibility for vacation until I was exposed to it. I think there's a connection here with what I'm saying, that sometimes we can become a, so assimilated into a way of life, and we can assume that this is the way life is supposed to be, this is the way the kingdom is supposed to be, or whatever, and we can miss, man, that there are all sorts of latent hidden idols in there that are vying for our devotion, that are vying for our attention, vying for our allegiance. you know we've been talking on the broader cultural civic level but you know even if we just bring it down to just a purely personal level well, hopefully we can all recognize that man these gods of power wealth comfort sex whatever it is man these are seductive idols these are intoxicating idols that so much so that we are tempted to worship any system, whether it's on the broader cultural, civic level, or any system that can get us those things, that can get us power, that can get us control, that can get us wealth, that can get us security, whatever it is. We'll, we'll align ourselves with whatever system, even if it's a self-concocted system, to get those things active in our own life. And part of what Revelation wants to see, okay, Once you see, first of all, that's whore worship, and that's whore relationship. That's religion on demand, where you're buying into a system because it's promising to you immediate power, comfort, wealth, pleasure, security, whatever it is. The book of Revelation wants you to see that that is participation with something unholy. When you take a good thing, and you elevate it to divine status, and then you pledge yourself in full allegiance to that, that is participation in something unholy, And his participation is something that's full of abominations. Or as the Bible would say, you ultimately become like what you worship. You worship power. You live your life in fear. And the only way to assuage that fear is to get more and more power over other people. You live your life in pursuit of wealth as your ultimate God in life. And you'll just view other people as pawns to, you know, ultimately in service of your financial prosperity. You worship pleasure sex, whatever it is, and you'll just view other people as objects that you might be able to take and use and consume for your pleasure and well-being, right? So Revelation wants to pull back its participation in this drunken cup of abominations. And I think it wants you to see, too, it's, it's a deviation from what we're called to. We're called to give ultimate testimony to the glory, to the beauty of Christ and to his kingdom. And when we live our lives in... in in hot pursuit of these false counterfeit gods, what are we doing? But we're giving public testimony that Jesus isn't worth it and these other gods are. And that's not what we're called to. Ah, We could keep going. It's already 11.15. Let me sum this up. We really didn't even get into the different heads of the beast. Don't worry about that all so much. We can have a nice fireside chat if you're a code breaker. and We want to talk through those things. That's fine. But just see in here, there's this coming together. Of wealth, opportunity, privilege, lavish blessings, and power, so much so that John, who is normally stoic in his motions, is tempted to fall down and worship. And I think John is emblematic of the whole church in that day that would have been tempted the similar way, to fall down and worship, because it would have been a quick, easy out of their suffering and their pain. Right? And I think it's in the same way for us too. Right? These gods are insidious and that they're hit that they're hidden. And whether it's the state, which can afford you power and can afford you great wealth and opportunity, especially in a nation like ours, or whether it's any other system that you concoct or that you find to get these things for you in a quick and expedient manner, the book of Revelation wants to pull that curtain by and say, hey, watch out. Why would you fall in worship of that? We've already shown time and time again how God is going to come in judgment over these things which we have taken and elevated to divine status, and he will prove himself sovereign over all of that. Why would you worship those things? Because it leads you down destructive paths. Why would you worship these things? Because they aim ultimately at your own destruction. Right As David Foster Wallace told that graduating class at Kenyon College we talked about last year, these guys will eat you alive. And to live in worship of these things is to detract from the glory of Christ, which we are meant to radiate throughout all of God's creation as his lampstands, his spirit-filled lampstands. So heed the warning of John. And again, I feel like the charge, the admonition is the same as last week, right? This calls for wisdom, says the text, or I think another way of saying that this calls for discernment. Right, We should come away from this wanting to discern our lives, to take a good hard look at our lives. Again, make sure, okay, what is lying underneath? What is my life aiming at? Are there anything that I am tempted to worship? Is there anything that I am tempted to engage in this mutual contractual exchange of goods and services instead of living in covenant relationship with my Creator? In any way, am I tarnishing the beauty of Christ by holding up these counterfeit gods as seemingly more worthy than Christ Himself? Are they eating me alive in any particular way? Some of you are probably saying, okay, yeah, we heard that point last week, maybe the week before. Can we move on? There's a story of an old pastor who preached the same sermon like three or four, five, six, seven times. Somebody came up after him and said, hey, you've been preaching the same sermon now for five or six weeks. Can we move on? He said, well, when you get that one, I'll give you the next one. (laughs) That's not what I'm doing here, but I think that's part of what the book of Revelation does. The book of Revelation actually isn't that complicated. It shows you the glory of Christ. It shows you the hideousness of his rivals. It shows you his ultimate purposes for creation. And then it's basically a summons to the church. So make sure your worship is properly aligned. Make sure you are joining the heavenly choirs, not the earthly choirs, hail to the beast, but you're joining the heavenly choirs and exalting all praise, honor, and glory to your creator and the one who gave his life for you. And we'll just close it right there on that point that should be reason enough for it, right? The beast, at the end of the day, he kills. The lamb, ultimately, he died, so you may have life, right? Whore worship, whore relationship, ultimately, is going to end at your destruction. Bridal worship is all about you were bought with a price, It's not about what you can pay and what you can bring in. It's about, no, I've laid down my life to purchase your life. You were bought with a price. You have been sealed. You are on this road of sanctification. You are on this road to the ultimate fulfillment of God's glorious new creation intention. So why would you worship anything else? So may God keep us faithful in our worship, faithful in our service, so that we might enjoy worship of Christ to the full and that the world may see. He's worth it way more than these other cheap knockoff gods. And we pray that all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.